Welcome to the Activated People Podcast, a program that showcases social justice topics and the activists fighting to make America a more equitable society. Our mission to activate people and inspire movements. I'm your host, Kofi Annan. The topic of today's conversation is solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is the practice of holding prisoners in their cells and away from other human contact for anywhere from 22 to 24 consecutive hours. Many inmates spend weeks or even months in the state. The practice has been described as a form of torture and even evil by its critics. My guest today is Mr. David Smith, a former inmate at Norfolk City Jail in Norfolk, Virginia, who has spent more than 16 months in solitary confinement and now volunteers his time with multiple organizations, including the Virginia Coalition Against Solitary Confinement whose mission is to restrict the practice. David, welcome to the program. I understand this is a very sensitive and personal subject for you, so I appreciate your willingness to share your story with our audience and give them the first-hand account of what it's like to spend time in solitary confinement and your opinion of the changes that are needed. Well, Kofi, thank you so much for the opportunity to come um, speak on your program and to shed light on this topic that a lot of people don't know still exists in Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't mind, would you please explain to our audience how you ended up in jail and then solitary confinement? What crime were you found guilty of and what sentence were you given? Sure. So back in 2013, um, I'd been a pastor at a church in Norfolk and I was arrested on charges of possession of child pornography. And I had um, pled guilty, had gone to rehab, and was ready for my sentence. And um, I was sentenced in November of 2013. And the judge sentenced me to three years of prison and 30 years of probation. Now, mind you, he did not sentence me to solitary confinement. No judge ever sentences anyone to solitary confinement. That's purely an administrative decision on the... Uh, people that are running the jails and the prisons. Okay. But when I was sentenced, I mean, I was, so I was a middle-class guy. I've uh, never had any problems with the law before. It, it hit me hard. I mean, I knew I'd, I'd done some wrong things. I knew I was in a bad spot in my life before my arrest. But so being sentenced was a, a big hit to me. So I, I broke down a little bit in the room where you go to after your sentence before they take you away from your family and friends. Mm-hmm. And so they placed me immediately in um, the suicide watch at the Norfolk City Jail, which is basically solitary confinement. This is a small room, large enough for a bed attached to the wall with a sink and toilet combination beside that. And that's about all the space there is in the room. There's, um, I could reach out and touch the walls with each of my fingertips. There was no outside light. There was no TV. Um, and that's where I spent my first week in jail, and then after that, they moved me to administrative segregation, which is basically a fancy word for solitary confinement when you're not a threat to others, but they don't really know what else to do with you since they don't want to put you in general population. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent the next over 16 months in administrative segregation, um, not because I'd broken any rules within the jail, but because they didn't know what else to do with me because um, here I was a, a middle-class pastor and a from a white community and convicted of a crime that some people or a lot of people don't like, which heck, I don't like it. And um, 
Mm-hmm. They didn't didn't know what else to do. They thought they were doing something helpful for me. That's what I was told that this was a safe place for you, and mm-hmm. that's how I ended up in solitary confinement for sixteen and a half months. So their their thought process was that they were trying to protect you from maybe the other inmates. Exactly. I saw a lot of that on my block. So my cell block had seven cells on it. Now we couldn't see each other, but we were able to like shout back and forth to each other. As um, you've probably seen on some documentaries about um, jails and prisons. So on my block, we had guys like myself that were um, not a danger to others, but they were afraid that they might other people might take advantage of us. There were guys on that block that were being held in solitary before their trial because they didn't want them talking to other people in the jail. Um, there were guys on the block that were having mental issues. They just couldn't manage life in jail, so they would put them in solitary so at least that way they couldn't hurt anybody else or do anything else to disrupt the, the jail the, the um, jail community. Got it, got it. Um, so what was your, your mental state? Just describe the, the transition for that first week or, or two weeks. How long did it take you to adjust to life in solitary or administrative holding? I don't think you ever really adjust. So in my mind at the time, I thought I was doing fine. But looking back, I realized that um, you don't realize you're going crazy until after you become sane again. Hmm. So that first week in um, in the hole, in the psyche, or the um, suicide watch, that was a mind-bending experience. There was no exterior light coming in. You had no TV, no radio, so there were the only markings of the day you had were you had your three trays, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner meals that were brought to you, and then you had, when the lights would dim at night, I remind you, they never went all the way out. The lights never go out all the way when you're in solitary. Okay. And when they would come back up to full brightness sometime in the morning. But you don't know when that is. Hmm. I remember um, maybe two days into my time there, the lights had gone dim and I'd fallen asleep. And I woke up to banging on my cell door and say, hey, Smith, Smith, you've, you've got a visitor. Your attorney's here. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it, like 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning? So I groggily open my eyes and ask what time it is. They say it's 7 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense of time. And um, especially in that section, there was so much, um, meant so many mental struggles that other people were facing. You would have people screaming out. Um, you would have people... Um, you could tell they had some horrible mental struggle going on because of the way they would be talking gibberish or the way they'd be lashing out at everybody or the way they would just break into songs. Or, I mean, if you had a guy singing Broadway tunes down there just hmm. because that's what happens when you're held in that type of situation. Yeah. Now, when I moved upstairs to the other solitary block, this one, it was a little bit better. I mean, better is all relative, right? Right, right. So the cell was slightly larger, not by much, but at least enough that I could stretch out more. And we did have natural light, sort of, coming in from the windows, the slit windows across the hall. Like, I mean, you see the slit windows in most urban jails. That's what we had, but they weren't in our cells. They were up high across the hall, so a little bit of diffused light would come in. And then we also had TVs. The 
one of the few blessings, one of the few, and I, once again, I use that word very, very lightly in the situation, was that the deputies on our block would not turn our TVs off. So we each had a TV in our, in our cell, and we had the ability to change the channel, basically broadcast TV plus a couple extra stations. And the TVs were supposed to go off at like 11 p.m. and come on after morning count, but I think they realized that by allowing us to leave the TVs on whenever we wanted them, that kept us calm and placated. Because when the TVs wouldn't be on, <clears throat> that's when people would flood their cells or throw feces on the doors or <clears throat> piss out the the um outside their cells and things like that. So they knew that you know, it keeps the TVs on that play case. And it, it's true. It, it would. It was a distraction. Because in solitary, the way you keep from going crazy is by distracting you as much as possible. Okay. And I think that was really the biggest coping mechanism we all use, whether it was distraction by sports, distraction by thinking about what we would do once we got out, distraction by reading, distraction by um, rapping, um, whatever it might be, the whole way of coping was just distracting you from the situation that you were in. So what was your primary way of, of distracting yourself other than uh, TV? Yeah, so my big things were reading and really thinking about the future. So <clears throat> I was, I could never, I was never a guy who could read a longer book. Um, I just didn't have the attention span. Uh, once I went to rehab, I began to kind of build that back up, and I had my wife at the time send me the longest books that she could find. So I'm talking like War and Peace and things like that. And mm-hmm. because you could only have a certain amount of books in there at one time. Um, so if I could get a 1,200-page book, that was, in the jail's eyes, the same as a 70-page novella. So... Which one do you want when you don't know when you'll be getting your next book again? You want the longer one. It's going to take you longer. Right. Um, also, um, the guy beside this, and the cell beside me, his name was, or he went by Bornstar, and his dream was to become a rapper. So we would talk about that. Like, what would that look like for him? How is he going to do his business? How is he going to make this work? Hmm. And, um, really, those were the, the big distractions for me. And, and TV, of course. I mean, it's... It's the it's a placator. It's a a pill that keeps you calm and distracts you from the insanity around you. Um, I remember at the time I could watch about seven or eight Big Bang episodes in one night, and I got to the point where I knew all the lines of every episode, and I would start having conversations with the characters on TV. Hmm. Seemed perfectly normal to me at the time. I mean, what else do you do once you know all the lines? You start making up lines that fit in with their dialogue. So I realize now that's probably not a sign of, of solid mental health when you start talking to the TV. But, yeah. But I can imagine you just long to have a conversation with, with people. And so even if it's made up, then it, it helps to keep you feeling sane. Exactly. And that's the thing. You, you miss that contact. There's... You have a little bit of conversational contact with the people around you, but you don't have any of that physical contact. The only time you would get physical contact was when the guards would come in and put your handcuffs and shackles on. That was the only time anyone would ever, and also when they'd toss your cells and they'd throw you up against the wall. I mean, those are the only times you would get physical contact without either being shackled or 
thrown up against the wall, and that was it. And if you think about your daily life, how often do you shake somebody's hand or um, pat somebody's back or even give somebody a hug or a kiss? And in the solitary, none of that happens. There is no handshake or high five or even back, back padding. It's just nothingness. And that, that affects a person. Yeah, I could imagine that. I've thought about the, the inability to have conversations, but not the, the, the longing to just have physical contact with another human being and, uh-huh. and how that in itself could be, could be depriving it. Um, what about visitors? How often were you allowed to, to have visitors? Okay, so I will, um, my wife and I are divorced, and it has not been a very good divorce, but at that time, she was wonderful. She would come down every week, and I have three kids. We have three kids together, and she would always bring two of them because that was the most she could bring. Okay. So every Saturday, um, she would come down there with um, two of our three kids, always my youngest, and then um, two of my older kids. And at Norfolk, they did video visitation. You weren't allowed in-person video uh, visitation. You weren't allowed in-person visitation, just video visitation. Okay. So the way that would work is they would go into whatever room on the first floor they went into. I don't know how that was actually, how that worked. And there was basically think of a classroom with monitors with phones around the outside and a row of them in the middle as well. And you, they sit in their seat and they pick up the phone and they, they would be connected up to my floor. I would be in a separate room. I'd be taken out of my cell. They'd put me in shackles, take me down was all of maybe 10, 15 yards down the hall into another room where I was by myself. And I'd pick up the, the handset on the monitor and it would turn on and I'd be able to see them. They'd be able to see me. And we would just talk on the phone for about I want to say it was 15 or 20 minutes. I don't really know how long it was. Um, There was no time where they counted down. The the screen would flash briefly when you had about a minute to go, and then it would just cut out, and that was that. Um, But if you think about it, we weren't allowed, nobody was allowed in-person visitation at Norfolk City Jail. Everything was video. And then in my setting, they had me shackled while I was in a room by myself on a video visit. So even while I'm sitting there, I had my my hands shackled to my um, feet most of the time. Now, once again, I said not every guard there, not every deputy, I should say, um, was heartless. A lot of the guys, and I hope, I mean, it's been, what, five years now since I left there? So none of these guys, I'm sure, I hope none of them are still there, but some of them would leave the handcuffs loose enough so that once you got in there, you knew that once they closed that door behind you, you could slide your hands out of the handcuffs and be able to pick up the phone and, and not be restrained in that way. Right. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. They, they would click it one click, and that was it. Okay. And all you had to do was, like, turn your wrist and slide it out. And, so, and that, so that way your family didn't necessarily have to see the shackles. The family the- didn't see the shackles, but more for us. Yeah, because it's even more for us, it gave us a feeling of a slight bit of freedom. Because we knew that we were supposed to be shackled, but knowing that that deputy there trusted us enough that, hey, I trust you, man, to, to slide your wrist out of here and just have that moment of freedom. And once again, it, this is a really perverted sense of freedom where I'm locked in a room 
talking on a video phone is the only way to talk to anybody in the outside, to see anybody in the outside world. And I feel free because my hands aren't in shackles, aren't in handcuffs. I mean, that's right, once again right. tells you where your mindset is. But it was those little things that did help those moments. Um, how did your family uh, and kids in particular, how did they deal with you being incarcerated? Um, man, you know, I, I wish I could say more, but it's, it's not something I know that much about. I know that it was hard for them. I know the arrest was hard for them. I mean, there was a, a news truck that parked outside our house the day I was arrested, and we lived 30 minutes away from Norfolk. So, I mean, it was, it was rough on them. It was traumatic on them. Um, they they went through a lot. I mean, it was, of course, a shock to my kids as well, but it was, they've overcome in a lot of ways, but I know it was very hard and then very hard on on their mom, my, my ex-wife, and, and all this process. It was, I mean, it's traumatic when somebody gets arrested in your family, let alone when that arrest ends up being on the news every time I ended up in court, so... Right. I, can't, I, yeah, I can't imagine what they went through. Um, some studies indicate that suicide attempts among inmates uh, serving solitary confinements are five times higher than those serving in general population. Uh, did you ever have any thoughts of reaching your breaking point and maybe considering uh, suicide yourself, or do you know any other inmates that did attempt suicide while you were uh, incarcerated? I did not. I was determined to overcome. Um, I was saying I was fortunate enough that I had that chance to go to a solid rehab center, um, residential rehab, that got my mind in order, that gave me some of the coping mechanisms to help me make it through that time. But I know that there are other guys that were on my block when I was on um, 6J, and what they call the administrative segregation, not, not the whole, but the uh, administrative segregation. Um, and they were struggling. Um, there are guys that felt like they couldn't go on. Um, you, it was hard there outside of basically, I mean, trying to do a swan dive off your bed and cracking your head on the floor to commit suicide with the way the, the rooms are set up mm. without some, uh, some actual hard work. But, I mean, there are guys that wouldn't eat. Um, they wouldn't take their trays for days. Um, there were guys that would just lay around in their in their own squalor um, for days until somebody would come and pull them out and force them to take a shower. Um, so, I mean, I didn't see anybody try to commit suicide, but I did see a lot of people that just gave up on life. But, I mean, trying to commit suicide is an act in of itself. It, you still have some power, some will to act. Mm -hmm. But once, you're, once you've been incarcerated for a couple of weeks, the suicide rate, suicide rate drops off dramatically and you just get people to give up on life. Hmm. And that's what I saw more of. That's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. It, it actually takes effort and try to kill yourself because now you're, you're actually have to have energy to do that. Uh-huh. So the people who feel like, well, you did your crime, and if your crime is uh, heinous enough, then we shouldn't care about how however you're treated in there. It's your fault, and... And so just deal with it. What do you say to those people? <laughs> I think if our society takes that attitude that you shouldn't care, then we're turning our back on society as a whole. Um, when we begin to say 
one set of people um, doesn't have as much value as another set, either by the choices they made or the life situations that led them to make those choices or the color of their skin or what part of town they're from. I mean, we were really walking a, a really, really dangerous line there when you start to devalue individuals. I think we need to recognize the humanity of everyone. Everyone who's locked up is somebody's son or, or daughter. Everyone who's locked up has a mother or a father. Everyone who's locked up is a, a living, breathing person. Um, I, I'm a Christian. Everyone who's locked up, I'd say, is a child of God, no matter what they've done. Right. And, I mean, I, t- I told you to me, my crime was possession of child pornography. Some people consider that one of the most heinous things you can do. Um, a guy beside me, he was um, locked up um, for murdering a child. A guy beside me was locked up, um, was in solitary for um, spying against the, the Navy. A guy beside him was locked up for trying to evade the police and beating up some cops. A guy beside him was locked up um, for some some gangland murders. I mean, it was... We'd all done some messed up stuff, but each one of us still was a person who was seeking some better way of life. And I think that's the important thing to remember is that each one of us, whether you're inside or outside, has that ability to seek a better way of life. Do you think that solitary confinement actually makes people more dangerous or or less capable of reentering society and being productive members of society once they get out? Without a doubt. Um, no question at all. So one of the things I've done in my um, activism work is I've attended some of the Virginia Board of Corrections meetings. Now, the Board of Corrections is not the Department of Corrections. It's a a state agency appointed by the governor, and one of their major roles is to oversee the state, or sorry, the, the local and regional jail system. Okay. And after a meeting, I'm having a conversation with, um, I believe the guy was the representative from the attorney general's office, kind of like the, li- the legal liaison who's making sure that everything going on there is legit and they're not doing anything that shouldn't be going on. It's basically providing guidance. And we're talking about solitary confinement. And he's from out in the um, Shenandoah Valley area. And he was telling me of a case that he heard out there where this guy had been released directly from solitary to general population into society. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Virginia didn't really have that much of a support network. You didn't have as much um, of the integrated social service system that you have now. And so they gave him a bus ticket, and he got off the bus from Wallace Ridge, Red Onion, somewhere down there, and he had a bus ticket heading north up the Shenandoah Valley, and he got off of the bus in one of these places and committed like a triple homicide. Hmm. Just unprovoked. Um, Because when you're locked up in solitary, you're not getting rehabilitated. Yeah, that's one of the the questions I was going to ask. You mentioned mentioned rehabilitation and... uh, services uh, what what kind of mental health services are available to, to prisoners <laughs> okay yeah so when I was in solitary in Norfolk and um, this is a city jail so each city jail is going to be slightly different so they all have to have the same basic standards to be accredited by the um, 
the Board of Corrections. So what would happen is once a week, the at least once, once a week, sometimes it was twice a week, usually just once a week, one of the mental health professionals would come by to your cell and say, Mr. Smith, um, are you feeling depressed or suicidal or do you have any other mental issues going on? Now think about this for a minute. This is a, this, during the morning when they come by, the place is dead quiet. Nobody's talking. Everybody's being really quiet because it's still morning time. Nothing good's on TV, really. Mm-hmm. So whatever you say, anybody else on a cell block is going to be able to hear. Okay. So n- nobody is going to admit to any mental health issues. Nobody's going to say I'm depressed because as soon as you mention something like that, you're going to be targeted to be taken advantage of. Now, you might think, how can somebody take advantage of you when you're in solitary? It can still happen. People can still influence you, even if they can't see you or threaten you or touch you or anything like that. They still have the ability to influence you. So if you say, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling whatever, you say you're feeling suicidal, you're going to end up in the hole. And I'm telling you, that's where I started off at, where the cells are smaller, there is no TV, you have no sense of time, um, there's no stimulation whatsoever, no external stimulation coming in whatsoever. So why would you say you're feeling suicidal or depressed? Because you know you're going to end up in a worse situation than when you are where you already are. Wow, wow. So in my whole time there, I don't think I saw anybody reach out to um, receive mental health services while I was in solitary. We had a chaplain that would come by. So remember, Norfolk City Jail is a big city jail. I, I mean, what, 1,800 people might be there on any given night? And the chaplain, I think I saw the chaplain come by maybe once a month at the most on average, if that much. And so he might, it was a volunteer chaplain. It would be a different one every now and then. He might have a couple conversations with people who were struggling. But that was the extent of the mental health services that were available. Wow. There just wasn't anything. Yeah, and it's stunning that if you admit to feeling depressed or suicidal, then that could actually make your life worse and be actually put in a situation that would actually perpetuate even more uh, suicidal thoughts and, and depression. Right. And one of the things I've heard said is that having someone with a mental disorder in solitary is like taking someone with asthma into a room without oxygen. It's that same stress on the body. It takes what is already your weak point and makes it worse. Right. I think that's why a lot of critics do do actually compare this to uh, torture or cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, in fact, uh, from, from what I was uh, researching in 2011, the United Nations condemned the use of solitary confinement declaring that the practice should only be reserved for exceptional circumstances or for a really short period of time. And I had a conversation with Dr. Wesley Boyd of Cambridge Health Alliance, who described the practice as cruel and inhumane and declared that the longest amount of time that anyone should ever be subjected to solitary confinement be 48 hours. Um, And I know that the Interfaith Action for Human Rights is pushing to cap that, that number, at least here in Virginia, at uh, 15. So it, what, what do you think that the number should be? Yeah, so, yeah that, that's the 15 days there. So what we're looking at here is making those incremental steps. Ideally, there would be no solitary. Let's just get that right out there right off the bat. Excuse me. The solitary does not serve a, a helpful purpose in the prison system, in the jail system, for either the inmates 
or the guards or deputies there. We need to have better ways to handle disciplinary issues. We need to not have solitary being an option for punishment. So I'm a realist here. I spend time in a level two prison. And level two is basically, for those um, folks who might not know, is basically community college of barbed wire. I was there for 14 months. I saw three fights, I think, and that was it. Um, but there, if you got in a fight, you'd end up in solitary in a hole without question for probably about a week. I had a, my bunkie at one time, the guy who had the bottom bunk in our bunk beds there, he ended up in solitary for a week and change because he had contraband. His contraband was having too many stamps. Hmm. So ended up in solitary for having too many stamps. <clears throat> so that's what gets people in solitary now. I can understand that if you've got somebody who is violent and out of control, they need to have that cool-down period, and you can't have them in general population. I get that. But that's something that lasts 12 hours, maybe, less than that, probably. Hmm. And then you have to have a system in place where somebody who has been a disruption can be transferred to another part of the facility they're already at or to another facility where they won't be that disruption or that facility is better managed to handle that disruption. Right. Housing people in solitary confinement because of disciplinary issues doesn't solve anything. I mean, it's, it's not going to stop anyone in prison from doing anything to somebody else. It's not a deterrent. Um, right. All it does is agitate people's emotional and mental states so that they're less able to cope. One of the things we haven't really mentioned, um, we, we talked about this whole sensory deprivation, the whole lack of touch, that causes people to become less empathetic. There have been studies done, I wish I'd, I'd had them in front of me right now, but basically looking at, as you spend time separated from other people, you become less empathetic, and in a institutional setting where you are this close to other people, what does less empathy mean? Less empathy means you're more likely to get in a fight with them because you care less about their situation, right? Right, right. So by putting people in solitary, you're actually increasing the level of violence within the prison system. Hmm. So there's been some advocates who say that solitary confinement is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Where do you fall on, on, on the amendment argument? I would agree with that. Um, going back to something I said earlier, you've got to remember, no one is ever sentenced to solitary confinement. This is an extrajudicial sentence that people are receiving. So when I was sentenced, I was sentenced to three years incarceration. That was my time to serve. I wasn't sentenced to three years incarceration with X amount of time in solitary confinement. This is something that is solely being done at the whim of the local jail or prison. And if you think about that, we're taking people's lives and we're putting them in a situation that is shown to be detrimental to their emotional and physical health. And who's making that decision? It's not a jury. It's not a judge that has time to contemplate what he or she thinks is the best situation. It's usually a prison official who, even if there are regulations and procedures being followed, is usually making a decision in the heat of a moment, at the moment, thinking, how am I going to protect my guards? How am I going to protect my employees from 
what this person has just done or the threat that we assume this person has. How are we going to keep control in the situation? And there's not the thought of what's the long range, how do we create a safer prison? It's in the short range, how do I address this immediate action that's just happened? So it's, yeah, it's definitely cruel and unusual, and it's outside of our judicial system. It would be the same as a cop basically coming up to you and saying, you know what, I'm going to tell you right now because um, you did something that wasn't illegal, but is definitely not safe. I'm going to keep you under house arrest for the next 14 days and you can't leave your house. And I'm going to sit outside your door and make sure you don't leave your house Hmm. without a judge's approval or anything along those lines. I mean, that's basically what solitary is. It sounds like there isn't a whole lot of oversight or accountability with regard to how solitary is, is applied. Are there any standards and who ensures that these standards are being adhered to? Is there any data being collected? So what's happening in the state right now is there is no official standard. Um, no, when I say official, there is no legislative standard. If you look in the Virginia Code, there's nothing in regards to how prisoners, how folks that are incarcerated are housed and how solitary confinement is used. So at the jail level, you have the oversight of the Board of Corrections, and they don't have any official standards there either. They have the power to make their own rules, but there aren't any real rules made there. Um, at the state level, the Department of Corrections, they have the power to write regulations, and what they say is they will follow the ACA, the American Corrections Association. And that's basically the lobbying arm of the prisons, of the prison industry in the United States. So basically, they're following the rules that the prisons make up, is what they claim. So that's not looking at um, the side of what is it actually doing to the inmates. That's looking at the side of what do we think is best in the situation for the guards, for the um, the deputies, without taking into consideration what's in that bigger picture. So the oversight right now is really lacking, and that's one of the things that um, in the Virginia Coalition Against Solitary Confinement which um, contains the um, ACLU of Virginia, Interfaith Action for Human Rights, um, NAMI, SALT, um, Virginia Cure, and a bunch of other organizations that are working on this. We're saying, look, the first step is what passed last year. We had legislation passed which created a reporting bill. This was key because when we had submitted um, Freedom of Information Act requests, FOIA requests, to the prison system, when they sub- when they returned the um, numbers to us, their numbers didn't match up. What they said on one page of how many people were in, um, they would call it um, segregated housing or um, different, they have a variety of different terms they use. They don't use the word solitary. But their numbers on one page wouldn't match up with another page. So what we have now is we have this bill, this um, reporting bill, which passed, I want to say unanimously, you have to double check to make sure, but I'm pretty sure it's unanimous in the House and the Senate saying, look, we need to know what's actually happening. How many people are being held in these special management housing units? What's the total number of people? And how many different individuals are going through? Um, Interfaith Action for Human Rights, um, one of the organizations I'm involved with and I'm on their board, um, in Maryland a couple years ago, we were able to, this is before I was with them, they were able to get a bill passed there, which was a reporting bill, and it blew people's minds because when the data came out, I think it was something like 50% of people in the Maryland prison system had spent time in solitary. Wow. 
and a significant amount of time in solitary jail. I'm not talking one or two days. I'm talking a couple months. And so without this oversight, without this knowledge of what's going on, we can't really make changes. I had an incredible conversation with a gentleman um, at the Restorative Justice um, Symposium that just happened here in Richmond last weekend. And um, he'd spent a bunch of years locked up. And I came up, he was very eloquent. I was like, look, introduce myself, said, hey, I work on the issue of solitary confinement. Did you ever spend any time in solitary confinement? He was like, no, I hardly spent any time there. I spent, I think my longest been in solitary confinement was like two or three months. Wow. And he thought that that was short. <laughs> he thought that was short, exactly. So that's, when you're in the system, when you're incarcerated, and you're thinking two or three months in solitary is a short amount of time, that should open our eyes and say, if that's what folks think is a short amount of time, then what's the average amount of time? And where are these outliers that we know are incarcerated in solitary for years and years and years on end? I mean, I thought I was incarcerated for 16 and a half months. I thought that was an insanely long time. And then I hear stories, well, I shouldn't say stories makes it sound not real. Then I see these accounts of guys who spent years in solitary. Um, there's the um, Mr. Reyes, who's got the, the ACLU taking his case up recently. He was basically trapped in solitary in Virginia because he can't complete the step-down program because he's unable to read or speak English in the program literature for step-down, which is supposed to be Virginia's model way of getting people out of solitary, is only in English. So he has no way of getting out of solitary confinement. And there's that lack of oversight. Going back to the lack of oversight, something like that that has... DOC knows about, but they just haven't addressed it because there's there's no oversight to this. And that oversight thing is key. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was a little, I was like, how much does it really matter if somebody's looking over somebody else's shoulder after the fact? Because as you're saying, right now there is no oversight in solitary confinement. Um, mm-hmm. Our jail system, the Virginia jail system, has been plagued by deaths. It was so bad that the Board of Com- Corrections instituted, or actually I believe they were directed by the state legislature, to begin investigating all these deaths. Uh, the last meeting of the Board of Corrections I was at, the investigator tossed out this stat saying, look, since when we started investigating deaths, there were X amount of deaths the previous year. Now, this last year, there were a third as many deaths in, the, in our jail system as there were the year that we started our investigations. Hmm. One third the amount of deaths. I mean, that's still a lot. I mean, a third of 100 is still 33, right? I mean, that's a lot of people dying. But one third of where they were, just because the oversight, and this is afterwards oversight. This isn't them going in and saying, oh, you've got to correct this. This is just the jails knowing there's somebody looking over their shoulder now. Correct. Right. So if we have better oversight of who's being placed in solitary, and it can no longer just be a, I'm having a bad day, you pissed me off, I'm going to put you in solitary because you threatened me, and because you threatened an officer, now that's a um, a violent offense against an officer, so you're going to solitary. If we're actually able to have that oversight and eliminate a lot of the excesses, then that'll be a wonderful first step if we can get the oversight. Right, right. 
So are you optimistic going forward? You mentioned that you had the accounting bill passed last year. Do you feel like there's more awareness about this going forward, and do you think you're making enough progress? How do you feel about the future? Well, so I started uh, my advocacy work specifically on solitary for the 2018 General Assembly, so two assembly sessions ago. And in that session, we had a bill that would not even get out of um, subcommittee. So it couldn't even get to committee. It wouldn't get out of subcommittee. That's where the um, the political will was at the time. So we had a lot of publicity. Um, the ACLU issued their report. There was a lot of publicity, uh, uh, papers, editorials, articles being written in the Washington Post and the Richmond Times Dispatch. Um, the Virginia Pilot and the Daily Press have been doing some. The Roanoke, I think Roanoke Times has had some. And so there's been an awareness that built up after the 2018 session. So the 2019 session comes around, and our bills pass, or our bill passes basically unanimously. So the political will is changing, so I'm consciously optimistic. Um, I'm not... I'm, I'm not overly optimistic, though. I, a lot of my co-workers in this fight say, look, when the, if the House and the Senate flip, it's going to be great. But at the same time, we have a Democratic administration right now, and we haven't gotten any change out of that. The, um, the director of the DOC is appointed by Democratic governor, it's, and we're not getting any traction there. We're not getting the traction at the governor's office. We're not getting the traction within the administration on this issue. So it's, for me, it's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It's not one that's going to be easily um, changed based on what the, who the legislators are, legislators are, it's going to be one that attacks, that corrects those systematic issues within the existing institution. And that's a really hard issue to, to tackle. Yeah, and just to clarify for the listeners, when you say flip, it is currently, the, the, the General Assembly is currently controlled by the Republican Party, and there's hope that, that it could be flipped over to being a Democratic control going forward in the upcoming elections. And so I just wanted to clarify that for, for any listeners who, who weren't aware of the, the dynamics. Exactly. And on my side, I, I really don't see any advantage one way or the other with who the legislators are. It's a matter of individuals talking to their own legislator and saying, look, this is important. If we can individually reach out to our legislators, whether they are Republican or Democrat, and say, this is what's important to me. Why are we allowing our state to treat these people worse than zoo animals? And really, that's what it is, if you think about it. I mean, how many people would be okay with going to a zoo and seeing a monkey in, the, in a, a cage the size of a parking spot, right? Right. I mean, we'd be up in arms about that. But yet, that's what we have in every community across our state, is we're keeping men and women in spaces the size of a parking spot and cages literally cages the size of a parking spot hmm. um, so what is the what does the opposition say about this like what is their main reason for not wanting to see more restrictions on solitary confinement all right so the main pushback we get on the administrative so coming from the department of corrections is that they need this tool in their um, toolbox in order to effectively manage prisons plus they'll also say we don't really do this. We don't really use solitary confinement. Um, now, of course, we know that that second one isn't true because, I mean, 
there are judges who are calling them out saying, yes, you're using solitary confinement because you're not letting these people out of solitary confinement. So that's just a semantic thing. But the biggest thing is, is they feel like it is a tool that is necessary to control the prison population. Hmm. And unfortunately, there's no evidence backing that up for them. Unfortunately for us, unfortunately for them. <laughs> because, as I was saying, what happens when you put somebody in solitary confinement? Does it cause them to be more calm and be more sociable and be more willing to follow rules and directions? No, it does the exact opposite. It aggravates all those situations. Yeah. But it's been around for so long that it's ingrained in the system. That's really the biggest issue we're facing, is that that institutional inertia where what has been is what shall be. If Governor Northam wanted to, he could stop with, with the signing of an um, executive order. But the institutional momentum is just really strong right now. Yeah, it sounds like the, the this isn't a situation where the public there's some public demand for solitary confinement. It just seems like there's just, it's more of an institutional, more of a department of corrections. It's more of there, the, the, the primary obstacle to, right. to the change. Exactly. Yeah. So I talked to people about solitary confinement. So um, I don't know if there's going to be a picture of me on, on your website or anything like that. I'm a six foot three, rather slender white guy with usually a halfway decent haircut. <laughs> um, I was at a comedy show one time. And the um, comedian called me out as Tom Cruise's accountant. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not a threatening, intimidating person. And when I get up there in front of an, an audience and say, yeah, my name's David Smith. I spent six and a half months in solitary confinement. Jaws drop. When I go into a legislator's office and say, yeah, I spent time in solitary confinement, they give me a double take because that's not what they expect. Because what's our public narrative? Our public narrative is that solitary confinement is for the worst of the worst. Those that can't handle being in a in the general population. It's what you see on TV of that guy that keeps beating everybody up and um, he's a chance to try to kill people. That's the one that's a solitary, but that's not the case. So as the public realizes that, I think that's what's going to create the momentum to push back against that institutional inertia. As people learn, I think that's what's going to change. That's what's going to activate people. That's what's going to get them motivated when they realize that it isn't just the worst of the worst. These are regular people that are incarcerated, that are being sent to solitary because somebody had a bad day, because they didn't know what else to do with this person, because it was easier to deal with the mental disorder when somebody's in a cell than when they're in a dorm with 80 other people. Yeah. How can our listeners help? Okay, the biggest thing, this is, saying, this is really a political issue, so the biggest thing is reach out to your legislator. Um, <clears throat> we've got election season coming up. If you have a chance to go to a forum where you have um, the candidates speaking, ask them about solitary confinement. Say, are you supporting people being locked away in these cells for 23, 22, 24 hours a day? Or in my case, I was locked away for days on end. Or do you believe that we should have transparency and um, restrictions on the use of solitary confinement. After the elections happen, hold them accountable to go to them and tell them these are issues that are going to be going on that are important to me. I'm part of the Virginia Prison Justice Network, and we have a rally on the state capitol grounds every year in January. Come out to that. Show your support, and 
list your voice with other people saying that we know that there need to be reforms in our prison system, in our jail system, that the status quo, that institutional inertia is not acceptable anymore. We believe that the change needs to be made and we're going to hold people accountable. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a really great interview and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and about this very, very important topic that, that we need to shed a lot more light on. I think a lot of times people think of prisons and jails as as just ways to keep bad people away from society, but I think a lot of times people also forget that it also keeps information locked in and it presents opportunities for people to be abused or, or mistreated within the, the prison system as well, and that's certainly not the intent of prisons. Uh, we are going to be having an article on theactivatedpeople.com, uh, so we encourage all of our listeners right now to also check out the website and uh, read articles and learn what you can. Uh, speak to your state legislators about this topic as well and see what we can do to build some momentum to generate the change that we need on this topic. Uh, are there any, any final closing thoughts, Mr. Smith? Oh, Kofi, thank you so much for this, Tom. I really appreciate it. Um, I encourage people to reach out to their legislators. Um, if this is an issue that you're passionate about or you want to learn more, more about, uh, the ACLU of Virginia's website is a great resource, Interfaith Action for Human Rights, um, our website there is a great resource. And the Virginia Prison Justice Network, um, there's a newsletter you can sign up to receive. It goes out to a bunch of folks that are incarcerated around the state. Uh, that's also the organization that plans the um, annual rally at the state capitol. Get on that mail, mailing list so you can stay informed and really know what issues are affecting those that are incarcerated, the people that nobody hears from because they have no voice. So be that voice. Speak up on their behalf. That's it. People can do that. That would just be a wonderful result of all this. Absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Uh, to our listeners, again, to learn more about the topic and other social justice topics or meet other like-minded activists, visit theactivatedpeople.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.